Well, good morning. Um, I'm Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here. So if I met you on the way in, welcome. If I have not met you, um, please say hi before you leave. Um, we've got gift bags on the side that I'd love to give you if you, if you have not gotten one of those yet. Um, if I were to stand up here now and start talking about how... Um, some sort of strategy of fixing your financial woes or your relationships or your work or your challenges in life, wouldn't that seem extremely just deficient from what we just sang? I mean, right? We, we just got done talking about and singing about this holy, holy, holy God and yet, it's so quick in our minds, like the shift to go, okay, yeah, but what, what can he do for me? And we're going to see as we, as we dive into scripture this morning that, um, like, that's our rebellion, right? If that, if that doesn't, like, <laughs> define how we operate as humanity, here's this holy, holy, holy God that creates us and rescues us and has this enormous plan of which he actively participated and suffered and died for us. And we go, yeah, but next week I've got this problem I need you to solve. Doesn't that just, and, and, what I'm, not, and I'm not saying that he, he doesn't. I'm not saying he doesn't work in all of those things. I'm saying like the, the, the lens through which we look at our lives is often marred and fogged and Maybe it's more of a mirror than it is a lens. And see, what we're going to look at through as we go through 1 Corinthians is, is just that. And, and Paul is going to w- explain to the Corinthians, and what he's going to do, they're going to come at him with questions. <laughs> questions galore. Well, what do I do about this? And what about this? And how do we solve this? And, and people are doing this, and people are doing this. And what's the right answer, Paul? And what he does is he, he pulls out, who here wears glasses? He pull, okay, right? So uh, for the people that don't wear glasses, I, I should and I don't, but you know, if you ever see me squinting, it's, it's more habit than anything, but um, it's really weird. But, um, but what do the lenses do? They help us see things that we shouldn't. We were actually out to dinner last night with some people, and, uh, and we were talking about having to wear glasses, and somebody in the group needed the other party to hold the menu while she read the menu, um, you know, and, and actually I, I joke, but, you know, so my wife and I, honestly, it's, it's actually, this is how I know that we are meant to be together is when something comes up on a, a TV or movie or whatever and they've got, if you just turn on Netflix, all that stuff on the side that has writing, I don't know what it says, but it's not for me apparently, and so my wife will be able to clearly read it. Um, and then I read the menus uh, at dinner because she can't read them, you know. So, but we use, hello. <laughs> You're good. Um, um, so, um, so, so that's, so, sorry, I lost my train of thought a little bit there. So we use these lenses, right? And we see more clearly. And that's what Paul is going to do to the Corinthians is he's going to go, let me help you see the world the way God sees the world. 
Let me help you see your circumstances in the way that, that God sees your circumstances. It's a lens through which we're looking. That's what the gospel is. It's a solution to our lives, not in so much that you're not going to have any pain or suffering or troubles and God's going to just, you know, this prosperity gospel thing, and if you're not living the high life, then you must not be loved by God. It's not that. It's that we actually look through it with glasses that are correct, and, it's, and these are the glasses. And so that's what he's going to do for each one of these things. As they, they go, well, what about this? And he goes, well, let's, let's, let's look at that through the gospel and how the gospel interprets that. All right, so before we get in, let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to just open up your word. Thank you that you preserve it for us, that you inspired these words to guide us, to comfort us. Thank you that you give us your Holy Spirit to remind us. God, I pray that as we study your word today and throughout this series, that you would just change the way we see the world, change the way we see our circumstances. Help us to respond and to react and to make decisions by the gospel. Let your good news be the thing that fuels us in our lives and directs our thoughts and our affairs. We love you, Father. We thank you for this time. Thank you for the privilege to come together and to worship you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So if you have, um, if you're on our text or on the, the family page, I think I actually posted on the main page too. So we're in 1 Corinthians for 10 weeks, okay? But this is a cooperative effort. So if you're in a small group, um, your small group is going to be uh, bridging the gap. So we're going to go through 1 Corinthians 1 through 2, 5 from the stage today. And then you're going to do 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16 during the week. And then I'm going to pick back up in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. from the, And this is how it's going to go for the next 10 weeks, okay? Um, now, if you're not in a small group, I'd highly encourage you to. At the end, we'll have a, a way for you guys to get plugged in. Um, but if not, it's still stuff that's for personal devotion and things that we're gonna, I'm going to be leveraging you know, what Paul says in 2, uh, 6 through 16 to next week, right? And so it's going to be important for us to walk through this together because they're going to be building upon each other. Um, there's also kids stuff. So if you, if you go to that link on the Instagram, it's tccjacks.kids. Uh, Leslie's putting a bunch of stuff up there for the kids so that you can have family discussions about these things and you can kind of keep this, keep this rolling through. So it's going to be an awesome opportunity for us to really dive in to 1 Corinthians and see what God has for us in it. All right, I'm going to go history lesson a little bit here. So I got I to gotta start with, um, I told Melissa, I'm like, I, I, I like starting books, especially because I'm, I'm, I'm a little academic. Um, but I also don't like it because there's some amazing truths in this, and I don't want to cloud it up with a bunch of history facts. But, um, but I got to give us some sort of uh, basis for what we're operating off of. Okay, so, um, so we're talking about Paul. Paul wrote the letter to the first Corinthians. Now, Paul, if, as some of you know, right, he was uh, a Pharisee, Jewish elite, very knowledgeable. And when Jesus came on the scene, uh, not a fan would be an understatement, okay? So he thought Jesus was a heretic. Um, even though he knew that he was waiting for the Messiah to come, he did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And, 
And subsequently, for about five years after Jesus had uh, rose from the grave, um, Paul was persecuting the church. Um, in fact, Paul's, many think that Paul was the guy that was standing there when Stephen died, that when they killed Stephen. And, and Paul killed people. Like, like we, we kind of forget this. We're like, oh, let's read what he wrote as this great, amazing pastor. And you're like, yeah, well, he also murdered people. Um, which is not to be taken lightly. And you got to imagine that this guy wrestled with his history. He didn't, right? I, I'm guessing probably a little worse than everybody in here. I hope. Give me a vertical, right? Okay. Uh, no, I'm just joking. Um, but, but the reality is, like, it's, it's, it's this Paul who Jesus appears to as he's on his way to Damascus to go stop the spread of the gospel specifically. That's what he's going to. Jesus appears to him and, his, and the guys that are with him and basically reveals to Paul who he is, and he validates exactly what, uh, what he's going to do. And if you look at Acts chapter 18, we get the story of, um, I'm sorry, I super jumped ahead there. Stand by on Acts 18. Don't go there yet. So, so this is Paul. And so he's, um, so automatically, as soon as Jesus appears to him, he continues to Damascus. He goes there. Now he goes to the Christians, who are arguably afraid of him, rightfully so. Um, and it, over some circumstances, Paul ends up going to Arabia for three years. Like, he just goes away. Probably because nobody would even invite him into his house, right? Because they were afraid that this was some ploy by the Jews to, to destroy them, right? And so he goes out and he preaches. He goes into the synagogues and he's preaching that Jesus is the son of God, that he's the Messiah they've been waiting for. So here's this academic Pharisee Jewish leader. And now all of a sudden he's like, Jesus is the Messiah. And it says that he reasoned in the scriptures. And in fact, what he ends up doing on his uh, on his, one of his missionary journeys, he goes to Corinth. Now, Corinth was a pretty rough city, and, and it describes how, now you can turn to Acts chapter 18, um, and it describes how he rolled into Corinth in Acts chapter 18, 1. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. So this was Paul's MO. This is what he did. He built tents, and he traveled into these cities, and he'd start preaching in the synagogues. He'd show up on the Sabbath on a Saturday and start preaching and telling them that, hey, Jesus actually is the Messiah. And he did this for quite some time, and they got increasingly frustrated with him, and they end up kicking him out. And you can read more about that in Acts chapter 18 of his time in Corinth. And he, he actually goes next door, which I think is actually quite humorous. He goes to this Greek uh, guy's house next door, and he basically plants his church next door to the synagogue and starts uh, preaching there, uh, which you got to imagine would have been pretty frustrating to the, the Jewish leadership there. All right, so so let's talk real quick Corinth. So Corinth was a rough city. And if you Google it and you go and look, um, a, a, very, um, it's a very narrow piece of land is right where it's, station, where, it's, where it's placed. And so it was huge for merchants and travelers and trade, um, lots of wealth, lots of promiscuity. So it was a pretty, it was a pretty and, and they were proud of it. They worshiped 
uh, Aphrodite. Um, it was very much a place where that was part of the culture, okay? Um, and that's an important part as we walk through this. We're going to see all of this stuff is kind of the basis for as we start to hear the questions that they're asking. Because they, they would ask stuff that, that you and I would probably go, um, I don't see that as a problem. For them, it really was a problem because everybody in their circles had, were promiscuous, and that was okay. That was normal. And they were wealthy, and they were prestigious, and it was about success and power and strength, and that was the culture that the church found themselves in. And so we actually, we're going to skip forward just a second here. We'll come back to it in a second. But um, in 1 Corinthians 2, 1, Paul describes how he walked into this city, Corinth. And it kind of gives us a little bit of understanding. It says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, do not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So that's how Paul walks in. He goes on to describe, like, he didn't walk in this, this city going, I've got the game, it's going to be life-changing, let me, let, me, let me tell you all the fixes to your lives. Because they didn't need his fixes, or at least they didn't think they did, right? And so what does he do? He comes in and he says, I'm going to make this really simple. I'm going to preach Christ crucified. Like, the rest of that stuff is going it, to, it'll be understood based on that fact that Jesus Christ was crucified. And now there's more implications to that, right? And we know that when he says Christ crucified, he's not talking about just that Jesus was killed and, uh, on a cross via capital punishment by the Romans. Like, that wasn't all of it. It was that Jesus came intentionally to die. For us on the cross to take our sins, to be buried, to be raised again, to conquer what? Satan, sin, and death. And so that's what he says. Like, that's the key point. That's what matters. And so that's what Paul goes, I'm not going to argue with you about your promiscuity right now. I'm going to preach Christ crucified. And so that's how Paul walks in to this place. Now, the dating of this, Paul writes it around 55 A.D., we know that when we can, uh, there's, it mentions in Acts 18, there's a new proconsul in the area. We know from Roman records that he came in in 51 AD, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I can go offline, we can talk more about it. But basically, 55 AD, 56 AD, somewhere in there is when Paul is actually writing this letter to the Corinthians, um, which was about three years after he left them. So he, he, for a year and a half, he was in Corinth. And he was preaching, and he was reasoning in the synagogues, and then he leaves. And so now, fast forward, this is three years later, and he's writing a letter back to them, and he's answering some of their questions. And, um, you know, you can, uh, when we start talking about, like, okay, well, how do we know that this is actually that letter? It's a valid question. Um, we've got archaeological evidence. We've got an entire manuscript of 1 Corinthians that's, that's date on papyrus that's dated from 125 to 150 A.D., okay? So when people start rolling around with the, oh, it's a translation of a translation of a translation, that's totally bogus. When they say, oh, the Catholic Church put that all together in like the third century, not true either. Um, we have an actual piece of papyrus. You can go look at it. It's called P46. 
It's in the Chester Beatty Manuscripts. I mean, it's in the library. You can, you can read. If you know Greek, you can read it. Uh, there's even some websites that give you like the uh, line by line. Uh, and, and, and that's what this is. So that's where our scholars go to read 1 Corinthians to translate it to then put it into our Bibles. So is it really what Paul wrote? Yeah, it, it's really what he wrote. Um, here's the other piece, and this is, this is super cool, okay? Um, Paul didn't write this out of a vacuum. Like, he was communicating with the Corinthian church. This is probably one of the best instances where we have application of the gospel in the life of a Christian, back and forth conversation. I, I've, I've actually expressed this before. There's not a lot of times where, like, like the woman at the well, right? Jesus speaks to the woman at the well, and then we never hear from her again. And I kind of wonder, like, what happened, right? Like, I mean, we, a couple people, Mary, Lazarus, like we, we know that they kind of stuck around, but there's a lot of people that we just don't know what happened. Well, with the Corinthian church, we actually do get to see like this interplay of what does the life of a believer look like? What are the struggles and how did, does Paul answer them? So there's this back and forth. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 1.11, uh, we're gonna read through it and it says that he got a report from Chloe, a letter from the, how, the, 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 the people that were part of Chloe's household, whoever Chloe is, um, she had some, a small group probably in her house and there was, and she, there was a complaint that a letter had gotten to Paul and so he had received that, right? So they were still seeing Paul as some sort of authority, okay? And asking him, what, what do you think we should do in this circumstance? Um, in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul mentions that the Corinthians... Um, uh, it had misunderstood his first letter. And so the first Corinthians, first Corinthians, there's actually a zeroth Corinthians. We just don't have it. <laughs> this is his second letter to the Corinthians, actually. So, and he clarifies what he said in this other letter. Now, so let me ask you this. Is that the lost letter? Could, could we turn on the Discovery Channel and maybe... I'm sure you could turn on the Discovery Channel and find some scholar somewhere talking about the lost letter to the Corinthians and whatever. No, it's not a lost letter. It wasn't inspired scripture. God, God did not inspire the words that were written in that letter because if he had, he would have preserved it and it would have been given to us and preserved for us to study right? This is our sovereign God, right? So it's not like God's like, oh man, we totally lost that, right? It's not how this works. And so we can look at this and go, how cool is that? Because here's what it also tells us. Everything Paul wrote wasn't scripture. If Paul wrote a grocery list, wasn't scripture. Certainly he wrote maybe a manual on how to build a tent. <laughs> wasn't scripture. Even a letter to the church that he planted wasn't scripture but this letter is scripture because god preserved it for us all right so what's the what's the context we kind of talked about this already um so the corinthians were struggling they knew the gospel they had been told the gospel but they didn't know how to apply it they didn't they didn't know how to deal with the circumstances of their lives in light of the gospel. And so what Paul does is he's going to answer these things. And, and honestly, a lot of people struggle with 1 Corinthians because it kind of sounds like he like comes over here, he answers a question. 
Then he comes over here, and he answers a question. And he's bouncing around all over the place. But he's not. You can actually tie a thread through all of it, and it's what I said at the very beginning, that he goes, let's look at this from the gospel's perspective. Let's look at this in light of the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's look at this in light of a sovereign God who came to rescue us and save us. And now, apply that. And, and it's remarkable, actually, when you take this lens and you start looking through this, because it's like, that's good. That's incredible. Because, you know, a lot of his responses here, I don't think, uh, I, don't think I would have responded <laughs> that way if I were operating in a vacuum. I don't think we do. I think uh, he talks about divisions, and he talks about arguments, he talks about doctrinal stuff, he talks about a bunch of different things. And I think for, mo for the most part, we try to figure out what's the right answer, and then we just declare that we have the right answer, and if other people don't understand it, that's their problem, not ours. I think that's kind of the general gist of how our society operates. And quite frankly, that was a lot of how the Corinthian church operated. Because again, this was a strong, powerful, it was about success, it was about being right, it was about leading, it was about all these different things. And so this is the culture, this is the milieu, if you will, that they're operating in. So what Paul does is he basically outlines three things. He goes, before we jump into all of these answers, let me establish three foundational truths for you guys. And that's where we're going to pick up in 1-1 in one, one as we get through the end of um, the end of, uh, well, through chapter 2, verse 6. So um, open up your Bibles if you've got them. Open it up on, the, uh, on an app if you've got it. Otherwise, the verses will be on the screen. I'll be reading from the ESV. We're going to start in 1, 1 through 9. It says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Which, by the way, that dude will get beat in Acts 18 or somewhere around there. So go back and read that. It's kind of cool. So this guy's still around. Um, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so what Paul starts with is they, remember, they, there's this communication going. There's problems in the church. There's troubles. There's frustrations. There's anger. There's, there's all sorts of things that we're going to see. And what Paul goes is, God sustains you. God sustains us. He says, he is faithful. You're not going to be faithful. I'm not going to be faithful right? We know this to be true. We are all rebellious. We are all sinful. But God is faithful. He does the change in our hearts. He rescues us. He declares us guiltless because of what? Because Jesus cleansed us from all unrighteousness. He took away all of our sins, 
and he gave us his righteousness. And so we are, in fact, guiltless. Did you make yourself guiltless? No. Do, do you need to do some more good works to, to be better in God's eyes? No. You see, God is the one that's faithful. He rescued us. And he sustains us. And so that means that while they're waiting for the revealing of Jesus, just like we are still waiting for Christ to come back, we're going to trip, we're going to stumble, we're going to mess up, we're going to have phases in our lives where we're not proud of. Youth, you've got phases in your lives that are in the future that you're not going to be proud of. And yet, God is faithful. And God sustains us, and we can take comfort in knowing that it's by his power, not ours. And so that's what, that's what Paul starts with. He goes, listen, I understand you guys got a lot of problems. Just realize, just realize that God is the sustaining force in your life. All right, then he gives the second one. And this is in verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. Oh, that's easy, right? <laughs> that shouldn't be hard. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? <laughs> I love it. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. All right, I, I just love this parenthetical reference here because this makes this such a real letter that's unedited. He says, I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. <laughs> right, you got to imagine the church is like, like there's like Bob sitting there in the church. He's like, you baptized me, Paul. You don't remember me, right? <laughs> Maybe they skipped over that part. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. We'll get, we'll get to that last statement here in a second. But, but what he says here is that we ought to be united together and, and all, united in, in Christ. United around Christ. Like that's our defining thing. That's what inspires us, that's what motivates us, that's what informs our lives, our reactions, our actions, our decisions. All of that is because we are uniting Christ. How can he say that we ought to all agree with one another? That's absolutely preposterous. Now, here's, here's the interesting part. And if your Bible is like mine, it says divisions in the church, and it even says no divisions among you. These are not doctrinal divisions. And these aren't heresies. Here's how we know. He later on, I think it's in, I don't know, I might have it. Oh, yeah, 1 Corinthians 3, 5. He talks about Apollos. And he says, like, we're working together in this. And yet there are still people saying, I follow Apollos. If, if this was a heretical problem, that, that Paul wouldn't have said that. 
He wouldn't have said that Apollos is doing his part and I'm doing my part and we're all serving in God's kingdom. He would have said, he's a blasphemer, kick him out, get rid of him, right? Like he does other people later on, right? And so we know that when we read this, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, these aren't, these aren't heresies. And in fact, Paul isn't even concerned with the doctrine that's going on. What these are are just factions. In fact, that word divisions that most of your Bibles probably say is actually better translated like factions or splits. It has more to do with competitiveness than it has to do with doctrine. It has more to do with the ego than it does with glorifying God. It has more to do with selfishness and being on the right and winning team than it does anything else. You see, it's a selfish motivation where you go, yeah, we like, we want to be on this team. That's crushing to me because we all deal with that and we do that and it's part of our culture right this is how this is how detailed this gets where we go that's exactly our culture we want to be a part of the right thing at the right timing so we can say that we were a part of the right thing at the right timing You see, what what Paul's going to do is go, let's look at this through the gospel. You see, your divisions are dividing Christ. You're dividing your testimony. You're dividing the unity that God has the power to sustain us united. And we we see this throughout Scripture, that, that God is very clear that we should be united in Christ, that there is one church, his church. And so it's a challenge for us because we like the branding and we like the things that give us a sense of team, a sense of belonging. But that's not what this is about. I mean, it is belonging to Christ, but nothing else. And so Paul it makes it very clear that we should be united in Christ. So that means you're going to disagree and you're going to argue, you're going to have difficult conversations with each other in this church. Look around. If you're doing church, if, if we're allowing the Bible to define church, you will know other people in here, and you will offend them, and you will be offended by them. How's that for a promise? It's true. And so the question for us, are Are we willing to be that united? Are we willing to be offended? Are we so bold as to say, I'm probably going to offend somebody, and I'm going to repent, and I'm going to ask their forgiveness because I'm sinful, and you're sinful. I mean, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. I think we talked about it last week, that God puts us together and goes, here, represent me. And yet he does. We'll actually see it a little bit later, how he talks about this. And so, so those are the first two building blocks. God sustains us. God wants us to be united. And he doesn't say united in some things. He's like, no, united in Christ. That's where our unity comes from. And then look at what he says in verse 18. And then he kind of gets into a little bit of this. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those 
who are perishing. The word folly is obviously not one we use very frequently anymore, but it means basically it's ridiculous. That's what it means. I mean, that's, that would be our normal verbiage for that. He says, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so Paul creates this huge contrast here where he goes, you understand that when we preach Christ crucified, there's two responses. One is a recognition of the power of God because a heart's been changed. And the other one is, that's ridiculous. So the question, why is there a third that we see where it's like, well, Jesus is okay. He, he seems pretty functionally good. He benefits us. I, I wouldn't mind bringing my kids up in the church. Why does that third option exist? Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom, and listen to this one. This is, I forget about underline this one. This is, or highlight it in your app or whatever. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. In the wisdom of God, he chose not to reveal himself through the wisdom of the world, right? By, by reasoning and rational thought and all of these things. And he goes, no, they, they can just connect the dots. It's like a math formula and they'll get to equals God. He goes, that's not how this is gonna work. You're going to preach and it's through your ridiculous preaching. Now, I'm not just talking, I mean, I'm not just talking about my preaching. It's, it is ridiculous, right? But preaching the gospel Preaching Christ crucified is ridiculous, and we'll see why here in a second. He says in verse 22, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greek, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is is stronger than men. You see, we preach Christ crucified. Why? What, is, what does that say? Christ, preaching that the Son of God came and died for our sins says what? It says that we are jacked up. It says that God determined that he had to solve our problem, that there was no, there was no means for us to work hard enough or be good enough that's going to solve our problem. God himself had to come and die on a cross to pay the penalty, the wrath, the due, the just wrath that we deserve. That's what preaching Christ crucified says. Preaching Christ crucified says that God's grace is incredible and is poured out for all of humanity, that, that he loved us despite us. Despite our rebellion to him, he continues to pour out love and show us grace. Like, that's what the cross proclaims. But what does it proclaim to the world? Shame. Right? 
You've got, you've got Jesus who dies on a cross. It, it shows failure. Obviously, your Messiah wasn't very good because he couldn't stop himself from being executed by the Romans. You see, that's the logic of the world. And what, is, what does God say? He's like, don't you understand? The foolishness of God is wiser than men. Nobody would have come up with the solution to our problem set except God alone. And so he does. And so he comes up with this. And so what he says is that the, there, is a, there is a third foundational truth, and that's the centrality of the cross. That is what we are about. We preach Christ crucified. And I'm not saying we, when I, when I say, I didn't quantify this before, but, or clarify. When we're talking about preaching, I'm not talking about me standing up here. I'm talking about you and your lives, right? Like, Preaching is the same word as proclaiming. It's, it's going and, and this being on your lips, right? And, and us interpreting and seeing the world through the gospel and pointing back to Christ, pointing back to Jesus, pointing back to a God that rescued us, pointing to our failure, pointing to our weakness. Not like the culture that says, hey, hide your weakness. Hide your sin. If you, if you hide your sin, then nobody will know about it and everybody will think better of you. For what? For what purpose? You see, this is where the lens of the gospel changes everything. And so Paul establishes this as the foundation upon which we are gonna go out and, and live in this world and respond in this world. And he says, this is how the Corinthians need to understand how to look at their problem sets before he even gets into them. And then he goes in and he, he explains and he applies this very specifically to his own situation in verse 26. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despise in the world even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why does our weakness glorify God? Think about this. Because if we're strong, if we're powerful, if we're successful, then we did it. But when, when God works in and through our lives, despite our weaknesses, despite our failures, when we can boast in our weakness, like Paul throughout his uh, writings declares, boast in your weakness, confess your sins. It's okay, be transparent, be authentic, because then what do you do? You're declaring that God is the one who's sovereign, that God is the one who works and acts, that God is the one that sustains us. That's what he wants, because then God is glorified. But we all too often want ourselves to be glorified. We want people to think highly of us. Let me just tell you guys something. That is 
the oldest trick in the book. When we start thinking highly of ourselves, we are an affront to God. It's ridiculous, quite frankly. And yet we do it. And we, and we sing, holy, holy, holy. And then we put ourselves up next to him. You're pretty good, God, but did you see what I did last week? How ridiculous is that? And so that's why we preach Christ crucified. That's why we, we confess. That's why we are about boasting in our weakness. We go, I don't have it figured out. I don't have all the answers. God has the answers. The gospel is the answer to that. I totally deleted part of my sermon. I just realized. So we're going to keep going in chapter 2, verse 1. The slides aren't up there, I don't think. Are they, Julia? No, not yet. Then Paul applies this, and he says in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. And see, Paul immediately applies this. He's like, I didn't do that. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Verse 5, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's how Paul starts this letter to Corinthians. This isn't a, this isn't a wisdom of men thing. And Oh, how I wish that we would get that, that I would get that. I, I hope, you know, my prayer often is that, that you guys hear the words that come from God, that pierce your souls, your heart, the Holy Spirit convicts you of, not my ramblings up here, because the, these are not anything. And that's important. I don't have some sort of wisdom. I have Scripture, and you have Scripture. And you can read the same thing I'm reading. And we together as a church, as we're defined by this, we go, let us not be divided. Let us be united. Let us know that we're sustained by Christ. Let us gather together, be together, and do life together, and encourage each other, and help each other to see how the gospel interprets our circumstances through the lens of the gospel. And that's what we're going to do as we continue through this, okay? So that's the point. That's where Paul establishes this foundation. And then he's going to start shooting from the hip and starts, not, that, that sounded not accurate. That wasn't the right expression. Anyway, um, he's going to start basically hitting all the problems that they start throwing at him. But that's the foundation upon which he starts. Let me pray.